The idea of the universal caliphate or the caliphate of man is not only a theory of the sovereignty of the ummah as a body over its rulers and political institutions, although it is that, but also of the restriction of the ummah's authority to whatever God has delegated and commanded. The sum of the covenant of vicegerency, from the constitutional standpoint, is the supremacy of God's law over any other authority, but through the consultative activities of the people. The covenant of vicegerency can thus be summarized as the sharia of God and consultation of the people, or text and consultation, reason and revelation, constraint and freedom. This is the problem that remains to be untangled. How are all of these various materials woven together? And what contradictions and ambiguities are produced by this attempt to do justice to the divine sovereignty, the rule of law, popular sovereignty of some kind, representation, expertise, and the residual authority of ordinary believers to speak and act as God's caliphs? I believe the best way to do this is to proceed carefully through the distinctly divine and distinctly popular elements of this theory of legitimacy and sovereignty. For though divine and popular sovereignty are formed from the same relationship, their elements remain conceptually distinct and are often in tension. Welcome to Middle East Centre Book Talk, the Oxford podcast on new books about the Middle East. These are some of the books written by our members or books that our community are talking about. My name is Osama al-Azami and I teach contemporary Islamic studies. My guest today is Andrew March, a scholar who is no stranger to Oxford. He completed his DPhil at Oxford's Department of Politics and International Relations as a Marshall Scholar over a decade ago. After graduating, Andrew taught for 10 years in the Political Science Department at Yale University and has taught Islamic law at Yale and NYU law schools. His book, Islam and Liberal Citizenship, The Search for an Overlapping Consensus, published by Oxford University Press in 2009, is an exploration of the Islamic juridical discourse on the rights, loyalties and obligations of Muslim minorities in liberal polities, and won the 2009 Award for Excellence in the Study of Religion from the American Academy of Religion. Andrew's second book, the subject of today's podcast, is The Caliphate of Man, Popular Sovereignty in Modern Islamic Thought, published by Harvard University Press in 2019. As we will see, it examines the problem of divine and popular sovereignty in modern Islamic thought through to the Arab uprisings. Andrew, welcome to Book Talk. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here spiritually in Oxford, and I'm very, very grateful for your interest in my book. And thank you for joining us. I mean, this is one of the more positive aspects, and we need to take as many positives as we can of the current crisis that we can actually host people from different parts of the world. It would be wonderful to have you in Oxford, but it's wonderful to have you beam in, so to speak, from Massachusetts. So tell us something about the writing of your book. When did you start? What sources did you use? And where did it take you in terms of travel? Well, the origins of the book are around 2010, 2011. I had finished my first book, and I was interested in a number of different things in Islamic thought and Islamic law at that time, some of which related to extensions of the themes that I had written in my first book. So I was interested in how to explore in greater depth some of the harder questions related to the encounter between liberal ethics and Islamic ethics, right? So some of the really hard questions related to the scope and the limits of religious freedom, freedom of expression, these are the core areas where liberal conceptions of autonomy or 
freedom of religion clash with Islamic conceptions of a belief and a conception of the good, the truth of a particular metaphysical tradition, and limits on the scope for human behavior to do certain kinds of harms at the communal level to religious goods or the, the freedom for a religious community to thrive. So I was interested in this. I was looking at certain modern and classical theories of the objectives of Islamic law or maqasid al-sharia. So I was poking around in these kinds of areas. I had written uh, a few papers exploring this on whether this particular Islamic legal theory of the maqasid was a fruitful area for not resolving, but structuring ways of thinking about how Islamic aims can and might not be able to be advanced in um, non-Islamic political right. communities and legal settings. So then you had the Arab Spring, and I was actually going to be giving a paper in Tunisia in the wake of the Arab Spring. So I was interested in the thought of Rashid al-Ghanoushi, who I had been interested in for a while, who figured sort of had a kind of minor appearance in my first book. But I was familiar with his 1993 treatise, Public Freedoms in the Islamic State. So I opened this and I was going to say, what do Ghanoushi's views on Islamic law, Islamic legal theory, the application of Islamic law in a modern state, say about the prospects for lawmaking in a future non-authoritarian democratic Tunisia? So the broad question was, you know, what is his conception of Sharia? What is his conception right. of the balance between classical fiqh and maslaha or consultation or something like this? And as I worked my way through his book, I realized these themes absolutely figure and they end up becoming somewhat important for the arguments of the caliphate of man. But what I realized is the real action is this theory of the universal caliphate or the aqtat uh, istikhlaf. This is what appeared more than anything else in his book. This is what he himself described as the pillar or the foundation of Islamic political philosophy. The idea right. that, the, that the people, both individually and collectively, have been deputized as God's vicegerent on earth. So this kind of hit me over the head. I realized that's where the action is. And it's mm -hmm. a really, really fruitful and complex area to look. Now, obviously, I was not the first person to discover this. So sure. part of it was to go back and realize... What is the secondary literature on this theme? What other kinds of questions does it open up? But that was the kind of impulse. It was sort of one of these moments where I said, that's it. That's my next book, right? The right. problem of sovereignty as it brings in everything that, of course, you're taught as a first-year student, you know, that right. Islamism is this commitment to hekimiya or divine sovereignty. But then here's this robust commitment to what they are calling popular sovereignty. And so just a flurry of questions raised themselves. And I was kind of, off to the races after that. Okay, fantastic. So that gives a really useful sort of overview of where the book came from. And of course, Ghanoushi is the only figure who gets two chapters to himself, so to speak, rather than just the one which, um, you know, someone like Qutb and Maududi and some of the other figures, Rashid Rida, uh, even Abdul Razak al these figures get not as much attention, shall we say, as Ghanoushi. And I think the background that you've given the fact that he figured, and I recall him sort of having a presence in your first book, but that you happen to be in Tunisia. <laughs> and in a sense, you you know, Tunisia is the only case within the Arab revolutions where there seems to have been something, however shaky, still sort of coming out of that, that's going in the sort of direction that one would hope that it would go. 
So thank you for that background. And if I can move on to my next question, it, it's that your book takes us on this journey that attempts to trace the genealogy, as you highlighted, of the important concept of sovereignty, uh, or popular sovereignty more specifically, in modern Islamic thought. So what you've described in the title of your book is the Caliphate of Man. And you, you say that this has kind of become the defining idea within contemporary Islamism. In broad strokes, could you perhaps offer us an outline of the genealogy that you present to give us a, an idea of the overall argument of your book? Right. So I begin sort of in the present with an observation, right, that I actually opened the book with Yusuf al-Qaradawi's sermon in right. Tahrir 10 days after the revolution or something like that. And it's not a work of political theory, but you see these themes in which popular agency and popular virtue, democratic political action, along with divine will or divine intent or the divine plan are kind of fused together. So right. you have this idea that the voice of the people is the voice of God. And mm -hmm. yet at the same time, you have this fundamental observation that it's not just any old people, right? It's a virtuous people. It's a pious people. It's a religious people. So this is the first sort of point of departure and right. point of comparison with lots of non-Islamic democratic theory, which says that begin with a people, whether it's an arbitrarily defined group that has been sort of set off geographically or ethnically mm. or because of some development of a national consciousness. And then you right. ask, how can that people be free or self-governed, legitimately governed? But you're really asking about how any people could be. Whereas in the Islamic conception, the people already has a particular quality or attribute. But more importantly, the people already has a certain will. It has a right. certain defined objective for itself. That's an important distinction because in a lot of Western democratic theory, the point of democracy is to discover the people's will or right. to discover which popular will is legitimate or can be realized hmm. through law or coercive action. That's the point of deliberation or procedure or whatever it is. Whereas in Islam, you be the will is already given in advance. So mm. that is itself a kind of complicated question, right? How can you have a legitimate commitment to democracy where certain aspects of the people's essence, identity, and will are already given by the theory? So the people right. can't choose to be other hmm. than what it already is, which right. is the ummah, okay? So that's the, the beginning set of questions. So then, historically, there was a question of, well, where does this come from, right? What is the significance of this? How does this actually represent a kind of revolution over pre-modern Islamic thought? So there's right. a number of themes, right? One is which pre-modern Islamic thought is kind of predicated on, if you're talking about the mainstream Sunni juridical tradition, on a kind of condominium of authority between hmm. sulta on the one hand and ilm on the other. So right. in some form or another, right. whether it's the sultan or the khalifa right. individually or sulta hmm. as an entire governing apparatus and the scholars collaborate in the governing of the community. And you know right. we have an understanding of the traditional way that that is divided between the sultan leaving many matters to the traditional Sharia courts right. versus right. having a wide latitude for governance through siesta courts or through right. 
other kinds of non-shari'i modes of go- or non-fiqhi modes of governance. Okay, and, and these are outlined in chapter two for those who yeah. are interested. Yes, yes, and it's not that's yeah. not meant to be a super original observation. It's meant to be right. kind of uh, schematically summarizing things that are widely observed in literature. Although, uh, again, I want to stress that that's kind of the Sunni juridical story about things. If you actually read right. a lot right. of history of Ottoman political thought, we know right. that in reality, Ottoman hmm. political thought in particular is much more influenced by Sufi conceptions and sure. philosophical conceptions that, right, that right. centralize and prioritize the ethical character of the ruler, right? There are a hmm. lot more hmm. ruler-centered, caliph-centered, charismatic right. than right. the classical Sunni juridical model wants you to right. think, right? But we'll leave that aside sure. for now. So one major theme is how does the traditional condominium of authority, the guardianship of the sultan or the caliph, whatever the executive is called, and the scholars become devolved to some kind of popular political community. And then the other story is how does a fairly non-utopian, realistic conception of politics in the Sunni juridical tradition become transformed to a much more ambitious, much more utopian aspiration for politics in much of modern Sunni thought. Right, so that's right. the kind of background. And then yeah. I moved through a number of thinkers to make connections. Uh, just yeah. uh, to add a point, you actually nicely sort of illustrate this Rawlsian idea, I think taken from his um, political liberalism, of the realistic utopia. And when you're saying it's utopian, it, it takes people as they are to a certain extent as well. Yeah, yeah just, that's, my, that's yeah. my idea. So sometimes people right. hear me saying that it's utopian. Right. And in the kind of popular folk sense of the word utopian, right. Right. we use that to mean unrealistic, high right. in the sky. It's a criticism, right, right, right. right? Which itself is an interesting observation. You know, a kind of very, very accessible history of this relates to perhaps Cold War liberalism. Right, right. Isaiah Berlin, the idea sure, that sure. utopianism per se is the problem because it goes right. against the grain of human nature, requires right. too much coercion. And so part of the Cold War liberal brief against totalitarianism was a brief against utopianism as such. And then, of course, you have the kind of period after communism in which there's this assumption that markets and liberal democracy can more or less provide for the needs of people. And this is also a non-utopian story because we're not meant to be prescribing a particular final end for individuals that holds for everybody, but rather creating the space for people to pursue different sorts of ends. Now, whereas I, on the other hand, don't use utopian as a criticism. It's it's just a mode of thinking about politics. It's a mode of thinking about what is the best that we could hope for in ideal circumstances. And then you add to that a certain kinds of feasibility or plausibility constraints that result in a kind of aspiration for a realistic utopia. Right. Given the kinds of beings that we are, given the limits of our moral capacity, the limits of our selflessness or the limits of our ability to act on perfect moral virtue, what then is the best that we could hope for if we design institutions in a certain way? So that's what I mean by a certain kind of utopianism. But what I mean more specifically in the Islamic context, and here I'm very, very open actually to being corrected on this, but on my reading a kind of developed Sunni juridical model of politics doesn't see the political sphere as where human beings realize their good or their Hmm. virtue 
or their hmm. path to salvation. Right. Now, arguably, in early Islam, the emphasis on following the right caliph, following right. the right vehicle of salvation, right. did see politics in this way. Again, hmm. arguably, some of these Sufi and falsafa-inspired theories, which the ruler is the font of virtue and salvation, and it kind of flows down or emanates yeah. down to the people. Arguably, that also makes politics central to the realization of our good and our salvation. But so much of classical Sunni political thought is yeah. very, very realistic. It's about removing mm. the greatest harms of social life. Violence, right. Right. fitna, sedition, yeah. hunger, crusaders, bandits, all of this. And what's very mean, minimal. I avoided using the word minimal on okay. purpose because okay. I don't think it's minimal, but I think it's constrained. Mm. And then also, if you look at somebody like Ibn Khaldun, who, as we know, is widely influential later on in Ottoman political thought, it's okay. not minimal, but it's a very constrained conception of what politics can bring. And even where somebody like Ibn Khaldun will say the difference between rational royal authority, mulk, akli, right, and right. the caliphate is that the caliphate brings a benefit in this world and, and the in next. the next. Right. It doesn't really explain why is it that the right. caliphate is bringing maslaha in the next world. It's right. kind of just asserted. Just to close out this thought, sure, sure, what sure. he thinks any government can do by way of bringing about justice or peace or the good functioning of economies and so forth, that's all that the caliphal model of governance can do. So right. it's not that the caliphal model of governance brings about some greater heaven on earth. It just is in some way it provides benefits yeah. in, uh, in the actual heaven. So that's the first thought. The second thought is what then becomes remarkable. And again, feel free to disagree. How much in thinkers like Maududi and Qutb and others, the political world, in the sense of bringing about Islamic law, is a site for moral perfection, realizing our good, in addition to just removing injustice and trying to bring about basic justice. Right. So that's also right. part of what I mean by the utopian vision. Politics right. becomes a site for moral perfection in ways that I don't think is the norm in pre-modern Sunni thought. Uh -huh. You know, I think I broadly, to be honest, I mean, and this will be somewhat impressionistic, you know, I've not set out to answer this in my own research, but I broadly think that your intuitions are correct in this. And you cite Ophema um, Anjum in your, in your notes, right. something which actually reinforces your point, which is to say Ibn Taymiyyah tried to move away from this ruler-centered vision to a community-centered vision. But the fact that Ophema, who's a mutual friend of us, of course, says this is an illustration of the fact that that wasn't really the case. Uh, I mean, to, to answer your second point, which is, why is the caliphate so central? Why is it better? Ibn Khaldun doesn't really give a response. He just says, you know, oh, it, it gives you salvation in the next life, as well as in this world, you're getting sort of political, you know, uh, benefits and justice. And my thoughts go back to Ghazali and his Iqtisad, Al-Iqtisad Fil-Iqtisad, where he makes a very stark statement, which I'm not sure is necessarily representative of how all Sunnis saw it, but saying that without the caliphate, nothing we do is, in a sense, legitimated. Um, Legal, but in the literal sense, it's not right. Yeah. You need the caliph to authorize judges right. and judges law. And... So he's the condition but... of possibility for legality. But it's not that, therefore, you know, that the site of moral development is elsewhere, right? It's Sufism or it's in... But you yeah. read someone like Ghazali's um, book on the Ahya, and 
so many of the, of the books are actually chapters in law, right? I mean, it's about how do you take the minimal bar that fiqh is interested in and raise that engagement with the fiqh to a point of ihsan, so to speak. And my suspicion, and again, you know, feel free to correct me if, if I'm wrong on this as well, and I think we're both in a sense exploring a question which is really profound and not necessarily straightforward. My suspicion is that the conditions of modernity suddenly allow for, and you look at, you know, people like Qutb and people like Maududi and who they're citing, you know, very often it's Quran and Hadith. It's the earliest period, the earliest history. It allows for bypassing the classical sort of like crystallized form of what Sunnism was and tries to go back to certain ideals where actually politics was a space for very serious contestation about salvation almost. So I, I do think that there does seem to be some of that happening there. I think uh, these are tendencies that are latent or made more latent, if that's a way to put it, in the classical Sunni tradition. But they're ever-present because they're in the Torah, they're in the Qur'an. The hadiths are in, you know, we think, I had a recent discussion with Amr Anshasi, who you may know about this, you know, through much of classical Sunnism, hadiths almost seem a bit marginal. You know, you think of Ghazal Ahya and the extent to which it's criticized in the modern period for having weak hadiths. But my remark to Omar was, well, people blame Ghazali a little unfairly. If you look at any books of fiqh, you can see they're not terribly interested in hadith unless you're like the Hanbalis who are the tiniest school anyway. So, you know, I think this rediscovery, you know, to refer to Ahmed Shamsi, who I um, sort of interviewed a couple of days ago, actually, on his book, this rediscovery of the Torah, of these classics, does dramatically reshape the way in which we see the possibilities of the tradition, I think. And, and that's what allows people like Maududi and, and Qutb to appear with, uh, in some respects, novelties. In other respects, you know, re-readings of things which are latent in the tradition. Yeah, um, I, mean, I don't want to say too much about that. I'll leave the, the specific comment about the centrality of the Hadith to experts. I will say that when you read Maududi and Qutb on the early period, it's right. not scholarly. It's not about, particularly in Qutb, it's about, first of hmm. all, there's an emotional aspect. It's hmm. motivating for action. It's right. mythical. Again, a word that's often used in a negative connotation, right, which right, I'm not, right. right? That it's right. really myth as opposed to fact. But I sure. mean it more that it's creating meaning. And in many ways, it's also, it's simplifying things, right? It's meant mm. to smooth out things, not to mm. explore it as a space of contestation, mm. but a space of deriving certain kinds of lessons for action. And I don't know if this is a good comparison or not, but I'll sure. raise it. Perhaps it's a little bit like the way that Machiavelli is going to mm. read Livy, or perhaps the American founders want to read the classical tradition. It's not as classicists or as scholars, they're trying right. to derive lessons and conclusions, and that right. often involves smoothing out a lot of things, right? So right. Machiavelli wants to explore what are the conditions for liberty in a republic, and right. so he reads, you know, Livy in, in particular, and yeah. some of the most well-known lessons are the ways in which, like, popular violence is a good thing mm. for mm. popular riots and so forth, because this is the language of the poor against the grandi. Right. Now, right. that's not a scholarly observation. Sure, sure. It, it's an observation. It's pragmatic, in a sense. It, right. it, it's, it's a utilitarian reading, almost. And it's an intervention in contemporary debates about right. how much should we fear the poor and right. are these sorts of things going to lead to an expansion of liberty or not. Similarly for Qutb, you know, it's not a very sophisticated reading, but it's a very sort of ingenious reading in, in a mm. way. And my reading of Qutb on the early period, which again, is only partial, it doesn't encapsulate everything, sure, but it's sure. sort of like saying, if you get the politics right, you get everything else right, Okay. 
right. the leadership right, get the law right, have mm. righteous governance, and then lo and behold, look yeah. how infused everybody is right. with zeal and virtue and desire right. to protect Islam and desire right. to help their brother. Right. That's the kind of lesson that I think Qutb is trying to show is that right. the early Sahaba, they were so virtuous and so pious because the politics was right. Anyway, that's my reading. Admittedly, it's not, you know, it doesn't cover everything that he has to say about this period. Sure. But for me, it's a very distinctive contribution. And it's part of what answers the question, what is political about political Islam? How are they giving a particular political reading of Islam? It's not just that they're emphasizing the importance of politics or mm. emphasizing divine sovereignty or engaging in takfir if you don't implement mm. sharia. They have mm. a theory of what politics does. And that's mm. what I found particularly interesting. Uh, and I mean, in a sense, I've got certain questions that are lined up, but I, I find much of your commentary so intriguing. It goes in so many interesting directions. I want to perhaps contest this notion, not necessarily contest it, but the way in which the term scholarly, the work that the term scholarly has done in thinking about someone like Qutb, you're saying, look, it's, this isn't a scholarly sort of like piece in the same way that Machiavelli isn't engaged in a cataloguing of the various ways in which uh, someone like Livy is referring to ideas that are used by later peoples as means of justifying liberty of some kind or and so on. But rather, he's trying to get something out of that text. And for Qutb, something quite practical, something quite social, something, as you say, quite political. And to a certain extent, I think a lot of Islamic scholars through history, you know, uh, their motivations are going to be very different to, I mean, quite dramatically different to what uh, a modern scholar would consider to be a scholarly engagement. There are the great sort of encyclopedists and the people who are cataloging things and, and also sort of uh, maybe engaging in original reflections, someone like Jahid and so on in his Kitab al-Hayawan. But you think of someone like, again, Ghazali writing in the Ahya. There's an urgency to the practicality of what he's writing about. And you read something like Kitab, you know, Dhikr al-Mawt, and it's supposed to shock your system, so to speak. And I think that spirit is carried forward by people like Qutb in a very different way, because for Ghazali, the political realm is... Mawardi's kind of solved it in some level. He's also made his contributions, Ghazali, in uh, the way that Krona talks about that, you know, yeah, they're just there to be the muscle power that keeps everything going. But the ulama and the sharia are basically, as long as they're in power, and this is how Noah Feldman also presents it, as long as they're in control, you know, that's all good, right? But that's not the case with Qutb and Maududi and these people. Suddenly, everything's been unseated. Suddenly, everything's up for grabs uh, in a scary way, I think, for these people. And, th and that's the situation they're reacting to. And they're thinking, well, you know, what are we to do? Our societies are basically becoming hyper-secularized in, you know, in their imagination. And our values are being uh, usurped and destroyed. And people are being taken in by this sort of liberalism in the form that it existed at that time, by a conception of the nation state uh, as the true seat of sovereignty and, and popular sovereignty. Obviously, people like um, Maududi were very exercised by those sorts of concepts, as well as Qutb in his own way. So I think there are interesting things going on. And that's just a reflection. I don't know if you'd like to add something to that. I'd, I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, if you think perhaps I've... No, no, I think we're on the same yeah. page on, on that issue, yeah. So I, I wanted to sort of press on to... Um, I mean, this is really uh, a fascinating discussion, to be honest. And I have a lot of questions. I'm, I'm going to go on to 
in a sense, because we're discussing Maududi and Khutub, which I, I believe chapter 4 and 5 in your book, I'm going to actually circle back to chapter 2 for a moment, where I think, in a sense, you provide this compendious overview of what might be called the normative pre-modern Sunni conception of sovereignty. Of course, you also highlight that this is, in a sense, the received normative pre-modern Sunni conception of sovereignty. This is how Sunnis look back at their own tradition today and read it in the pre-modern tradition. So there are all sorts of other possibilities, as you've suggested. So in subsequent chapters, you explore how modern Islamism radically reformulates this pre-modern conception in order to generate the Islamist notion of popular sovereignty that underlies Islamic democratic theory. And you, in several instances, use the term uh, invention to characterize this introduction of popular sovereignty. I think there's another Yale scholar, I, I was just having a, a breeze through Ovemer Anjum's comment on your book, and he cites someone also speaks about the invention of popular sovereignty. In, Edmund in... Morgan is the famous historian <laughs> who talked about the invention of democracy, invention of popular sovereignty and Puritan right. thought, or the invention of the people. In American Puritan thought, yeah. And I wonder if you can maybe give listeners a sense of just how radical the transformation you consider this to be from the pre-modern to the modern conception. Well, what I try to argue is that, like many inventions, it's based on certain kinds of materials. So when modern Islamic constitutional thinkers or democratic theorists talk about things like the importance of the bay'ah or the idea of the or the imamah as a contract, or the idea that the people, the ummah, is actually the agency behind this, or the idea of consultation, shura. These are materials that exist in the pre-modern tradition, for sure. And this right. is part of, partially, what Awamer's uh, uh, book is also trying to do with Ibn Taymiyyah, is to say that hmm. there's also a tradition in pre-modern, well pre-modern Islamic thought, that right. wants to ground the important aspects of leadership and law and virtue in the right. community as opposed to the caliphate. So these materials are there and they're meaningful. And of course, I think it's also fair to point out that there's both an apologetic motive to say, we don't believe in the divine right of kings, right. we're not authoritarian, we never believed in absolutism. And there's also somewhat of a sectarian motive, which is to say, mm. we're not Shia. We never mm. believed in mm. divine designation. Right. We right. never believed that God chose the ruler. For us, yeah. the ruler was always just somebody that was appointed by the community. Or again, when you read Mawaradin, you see that one of the ways in which the ruler comes to authority is through ikhtiyar, right. which is tempting to translate right. as election, but it's right, not, right. you know, selection right. or choice or right, something like right, that. Right. It's within the semantic range of the term election, <laughs> yes, <laughs> so to speak. That's right. yes. um, yeah. So these materials are there, it's just... As we know, historically, even in the most democratic moments, perhaps the election of Earthman or something right. like this, it was six people deliberating. Right, and right, right, right. it wasn't because they were representatives of the community. Yeah. It's because they were the power brokers who right. might end up fighting amongst themselves. So Shura, as the election of the mm. ruler, was a mode of conflict resolution, mm. not mm. about empowering the Ummah to choose its own rulers. Anyway, so I'm certainly unaware of any serious reflection on the idea that right. the ummah is the source of political authority or has to right. participate right. for governance to be legitimate. And right. So that's one way in which um, hmm. these democratic commitments rely on materials that are there, but, but they, mean they are something repurposed. Else. The other yeah. thing is this trope of what's meant in the Quranic verses that talk about uh, God appointing a caliph on earth, that this is... What God means is the entire ummah and that it's a political designation right. and that it's a transference of right. God's 
political authority to the people at large, that's a complete invention. And so one of the things I point out... Can, can you say that once more? Forgive me. So the, the trope of the universal caliphate, right, right, right. the idea the ummah is God's caliph, what I refer right. to as the caliphate of man, that this rests on certain Quranic verses, most famously right. chapter 2, verse yeah. 30, amongst many others. The idea that this, unambiguously, without discussion, without the need to go through traditional tafsir, means right. that it's the ummah at large or the people at large has right. been deputized by God as his deputy, and that this mm-hmm. is a political designation. It's the transference mm-hmm. of his authority to then control the political apparatus. Right. That's a complete invention. Right. right. So That's even when Ridda mm-hmm. writes or compiles the articles that went into his book, yeah. Al or yeah. Imam Al Uthma, he has as an epigraph yeah. 230. But right. it doesn't mean it doesn't that because yeah. the Ummah yeah. chooses yeah. its caliph or. Yeah. It means that you have to yeah. appoint a caliph. It really yeah. refers to the office of the caliphate as occupied by a single individual mm. with the classical shurut. Male, mm-hmm. Muslim, free, mm-hmm. reason, mm-hmm. all of the different virtues and qualifications, etc. Right, et right. Now, you do have a tradition in which human beings are God's caliph. You have this in akhlaq literature, you have this right. in Sufi literature, you have right. this in falsafa literature. But it's not really a collective political authorization. Right, or a, right, right, it's right. about how we become morally perfect. When we right, perfect right. ourselves morally, yeah. again, whether that's understood the way that Sufis do or the philosophers yeah. do or Sunni moralists do, sure, you sure. can aspire to being God's deputy on earth at an individual level yeah. by becoming you know, the best that you can be, so to speak. Right, okay? right, right. And in certain kinds of theories, it's part of this tripartite theological anthropology, right? What right. is the human function following Aristotle's argument in, in the, the ethics? Right, and irrational, the irascible, yeah. And, right. No, 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 no. That our nope. function is to be, ra- not our ethics, but, our, but okay. you know, the Aristotle, you know, the, the, the argument from the ergon, right? The function. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, uh, Islamic ethicists do the same thing. So what is hmm. our function as human beings? To worship God, to emarat uh, al-ard, right, to civilize right. or populate right. and develop right. the earth, and right. to be God's caliph. That's mm-hmm. what it means to be human. Right. But it's not. It doesn't mean that human beings collectively yeah. have this political sovereignty. Anyway, so the idea that, that becomes the central idea of Islamic political thought is rightly or wrongly a major revolution. Okay, so Andrew. At this point, I'm going to conclude the podcast. Uh, For those of you who are interested in listening to the full conversation, you'll find it on YouTube. Andrew, thank you so much for covering a a broad range of topics. I've been speaking with author Andrew March about his book, The Caliphate of Man, Popular Sovereignty in Modern Islamic Thought. And this has been Middle East Centre Book Talk. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye from Oxford. And from Massachusetts. And Massachusetts.